I've been reading a, a new book. It's uh, actually still in uh, in an advanced copy, uh, so it's not yet out. Uh, called um, the Gate of Tears. Sadness and the spiritual path. And making the point that sadness is a um, is a uh, uh, probably omnipresent emotion in all of our lives because there are some things that are genuinely sad. There's a condition of losing people and losing our own health or youth or being sad about things and this particular teacher is saying sad is not an afflictive emotion as we might think about lust or aversion. Sadness is a genuine thing that beings with hearts and minds feel. And I was thinking about how linked that is in my own understanding with compassion. How to be able to really feel genuinely moved in, uh, by some sadness, some loss, some pain, without losing a perspective around it, which I think causes us not to be less compassionate, but more compassionate because we have more of ourselves available to give. You know, I once, um, oh, I started to say two things at one time. I can only do one and then the other, so I start with one. Uh, When I teach people who are just beginning uh, in their journey as meditation teachers, sometimes one of the things that people ask is they say, you know, I feel all right about my practice and how I understand it and teaching. They say, but I'm worried about those instances where I'd be sitting up in front of a whole group of people and taking questions from the group. What if somebody asks something and I don't know the answer to it? So I say to all of them, first of all, it's not likely you'll figure out an answer. But I say, even if you can't figure out an answer, the answer to every single question is compassion. It really is. It's like, it's like Jeopardy. You know when you play Jeopardy? And they tell you the answer, and you have to say, what's the question? Whatever is the question, the answer is compassion. Because seriously, when we see clearly, isn't that true? When you see clearly what's this about in this lifetime, you cannot help but be moved that we are all incarnate in hearts and minds that are inevitably put out and startled and contracted and distressed by what's happening. The third noble truth, you've been learning with the noble truth explications as they were coming along, is that peace is possible. And for all of you and all of us, and most people, if you say, can you remember a time when just nothing was a problem, you say, this is a blessed moment. Everybody here can. He said, in case you're thinking, no, no, I never had a blessed moment in my life. You did. You had moments where you thought, this is the moment that I have been waiting for, really. And and then you think, I'll never be upset again. This puts everything in perspective. And then you are, you know, because that's that's the way it happens. For everybody. And when we see that, we really are moved about everybody's in this condition of being dependent on things being a certain way for us to relax and be pleased. I have a list of people 
in my, uh, as, as you've been doing metta and you've been saying, well, my benefactor and my best beloved and my nest not so best, but still beloved and colleagues and people and, uh, and people that I hardly know but I recognize and seven and a half, eight billion people that I don't know and don't recognize and in those eight billion almost people are a few people that I recognize and feel agitated when I think about them. Sometimes when you say it that way, it does seem silly, doesn't it, to, to have that leftover? I once, I, I, I once, I once was uh, talking with one of my closest friends, also a mindfulness teacher, uh, just before Yom Kippur, where the exercise for Yom Kippur is to make sure that you have uh, resolved all the bitterness in your heart. And she said, do you have anyone, Sylvia, that you haven't really forgiven in your heart? And I said, well, because she was, she's one of my closest confidants, I said, matter of fact, only one person. And then I told her the story of what this person said and how it was and why it's so entrenched in my mind and justifying my inability to relax around the thought of this person. And I got all finished. And she said, um, don't you think if there's only one person standing between you and completely loving all beings that, that you could get over it. You know? So the thing is, subsequently I got over it, but not that afternoon, but it was really when you thought about it. It's, it's bizarre that our lifetime spans are not that long and we complicate it by mortgaging pieces of our heart to stories about who did us wrong one way or another. So I'm telling you that not to you know, get ahead and for forgiveness, you've been doing forgiveness practice, but really to talk about how, compassion, how much compassion that arouses in me to think about how many second arrows there are around, how this life is difficult no matter what. We, no matter how good care we take of ourselves and our beloveds, Things happen to us and to them, and we have all kinds of things that cause us to feel sad. And the extra things that we do to constrict our minds and to make us really uncomfortable, the grudges we hold, the lack of empathy, the self-preoccupation, it's like extra. And I really feel about myself also. When I find myself caught in something, it arouses in compassion in me. Look at us, all of us. Why did we come equipped with compassion machines in us to love other people? Why couldn't we love ourselves enough to take care of ourselves so that our hearts were healed in that way? There was a Merton, Thomas Merton uh, film clip that for some reason was shown at one of the early retreats that I sat on, a mindfulness retreat. And I, I, I don't remember all of it at all. But I remember it being about Merton selecting, choosing a life of uh, prayer and solitude. And I remember that I was moved by it. And I remember that the final frame of the film was just a phrase. And it said, um, everything is suffering and everything is compassion. And I thought, oh. And that was really not long after I started practicing. And I think about it from time to time over the years. And I think that really, as time goes by, the understanding of the first noble truth about 
often phrased as life is suffering, but which we now really more correctly translate dukkha as unsatisfactoriness. Or there's something wanting in it. And what's wanting is we can't make it stay good. We can get ourselves comfortable and our minds comfortable and then something startles us. And then we're not comfortable and we have to do something. It's not a mistake, you know. We see about... in. Um, I see it all over the place. A lizard comes out from a rock and is running across, and suddenly your shadow goes in front of it, and it turns around and runs away. I mean, we're equipped to be alert to uh-oh, uh-oh. And so we're all the time making ourselves more comfortable and noticing when we're uncomfortable. That's the way we're supposed to be. It's part of what keeps us alive. It's not a bad thing. But when you realize everybody is bottom line trying to make themselves comfortable, in a life that's inevitably going to be challenged with one thing or another. I haven't told a long time, in a long time, uh, this learning I had from my grandfather who uh, couldn't read or write in any language. Uh, he said, if I'd gone to school, I'd probably be a smart man. Uh, but he was a smart man, not an educated one. But he said, uh, he would in his very long life, he lived to be almost 100, and I knew him well. He had many disappointments in his life, the biggest of which was, I think, was the death of my mother at an early age and the death of his wife, my grandmother, at an early age. And uh, some business things that he was working in some company that didn't go well. And he just was a, a laborer all of his life, but. He said very wise things. And he'd have some bad thing happen, some disappointing thing happen. And I'd see him as, um, try to assimilate the distress that he felt. And he would. And then he would take a deep breath in and let it out and say, it's very hard to be a person. It is very hard to be a person. It's very hard. To, it, I mean, he didn't mean a human being. He meant a person, a person who continues engaged in a life, a person who continues to be kind, to be decent, not to be embittered, not to hold it against life, that it doesn't go your way. I think it's important to remember always that all of the Brahmaviharas are um, manifestations in, in particular situations of a relaxed mind, of equanimity. In that new book that I'm reading, it says, uh, one of his nice little phrases is, what remains when the dust storm of ego has settled is a cleaner vision, a more open vista. I thought that's a nice way to talk about equanimity. When the dust storm has settled, what remains is a clearer vision. You know, when the Buddha said what was the result of practice, he said the point of this path is wisdom and compassion, the two of them together. And really, without wisdom, which is what maintains equanimity, you need both of them. That the wisdom is that this life is shot through with the challenges of accommodating disappointments all kinds of disappointments. It doesn't mean every moment of life is gloomy. 
and that everything is horrible and that there aren't beautiful new buds on all the trees and that there are baby deer uh, when we see them and baby cows out in the field and baby turkeys that are as improbable looking as their parents <laughs> already <laughs> and all walking you know, in, in appropriately with a parent leading and all of them coming in a line and I mean, it's an amazing thing, this life. And those turkeys will grow up and there are, they'll meet some sort of an end, a peaceful one here from people, but you know, there, are, there are wild animals up here and they'll meet some sort of an end, that everything meets an end. And that we grow up and get older and have disappointments and our body is not what it used to be. Unless you're very young and then you probably... Terrific, but who knows? <laughs> My friend James famously looked at his son Adam uh, lying at it, blissfully in his mother's arms, sleeping soundly two days old, and James remarking, from here it's downhill all the way. <laughs> I don't know that James remembers that, but really... It, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of more depressing way to think about it. It's not downhill all the way. It's complicated all the way. And the only possible response is compassion. We are all doing the best we can with what we've got to make it through. I have a, a, a person I know who used to, has moved, but she's come fairly regularly on Wednesday mornings. And we talked about that practice was to develop uh, the ability to say, uh, when someone says, how are you? And you say, I'm fine. Everybody understands that doesn't mean that everything is fabulous in your life. It means you're managing in your life. How are you? I'm fine. They don't want to know about your sinuses or your (laughs) bursitis or whatever, or your sister's troubles. I'm fine means I'm managing. So Gail said, uh, Gwen said, I never said, say, I'm fine. She, always, she said, I always say, I couldn't be better because we can't ever be better than what we are. You know, that it's a Midwestern thing. Say, how are you? Couldn't be better, which you usually think means I'm terrific. But it doesn't mean I'm terrific. When I am crabby and unpleasant, I couldn't be better. If I could, I would. You know, nobody purposely suffers. We are subject to mind states, and we have to. And somebody told me yesterday it was a great thing. It was a really. I, I hope this person enjoys that I am anonymously telling the story of uh, this person saying to me, "I've been having really lovely days most of the days." And yesterday was not a lovely day. My mind was in a snarl. I couldn't get it settled. I tried this, I tried that, I tried this, I tried that. It wasn't working. Finally, I said to myself, it's just a bad hair day. <laughs> Probably it'll be better tomorrow. That's such a piece of sage advice, you know, not to fight with it. To be compassionate for oneself and for everybody else because life unfolds just the way it is. And of course we're proactive, and of course we try to do things to diminish pain in our own lives and other people's. But when we can't, to be able to say, this is the way it is. This is what's happening. Let's see what happens next, which is a beautiful kind of equanimity practice. 
So what's happening? Let's see what happens next. It means you don't have to get all upset mind. Let's just see what happens next. Let's not jump to conclusions. So thinking specifically about compassion, let's assume that the mind has a level of equanimity. Everybody's been here for a while now. It's a level of equanimity. And metta practice, as you know, is goodwill. Goodwill really coming from the fact that we are really actually fundamentally, if we're wired reasonably correctly, we've been nurtured reasonably well, when we're completely at ease, we're, we're really a, a, a friendly kind of a species. We are. We're a companionable species. Most people, they sit down in a boarding lounge, they have a conversation with the person next to them. Maybe only I do, but I think everybody does. You ride in a plane and you talk to somebody about something. Certainly, if somebody looks like they're in distress, you help them out. I mean, we are companionable people, by and large, except if we're preoccupied with our own stuff. And then we're uncomfortable. So you say, when we're comfortable, we're available. So that's how I think it works. And I think that the, the extra, the extra um, challenge of compassion practice and of mudita practice, uh, really paying attention to someone who has pain and really difficulty at this moment, and really staying present without being envious or annoyed, jealous at somebody who's had some great good fortune, is keeping your mind in that place of equanimity, not getting really distracted by greed or envy. Or, and really, in, within the, in the case of compassion, not being turned away because it's too terrible to look at and the mind can't stand it or thinks it can't. In which case, it's really not possible to feel compassion. You feel aversion, let me not see this. You do the, I, I, I just popped into my mind, did you do this in the movies when you were a child? You'd say, tell me when it's over, this terrible part. You know, that it's that way that something, sometimes when things are terrible, you really don't want to look. Sometimes when things are difficult, you look, but the, you really look with a certain amount of disdain. It's very hard, or anger. To look with equanimity, this is what's happening. Wow. I wonder if there's something I can do. Is really to keep the mind present and engaged without losing its equanimity. I was trying to think of some examples of it. Uh, well, uh, labor and delivery nurses are really relaxed about all the indications of discomfort because they know it's gonna, this is the way it's supposed to be happening and it's all going to resolve. And they can be soothing to people. People are doulas because they are, know how to really be present for people in distress sometime and not magnify the distress. People who are hospice workers are able to stay with people who are dying and feel... Uh, really compassion for the family, but it's a balanced compassion. They're able to do their job because in their mind it's clear, this is what's happening now. This is not anything that isn't normal. Everybody, this happens to everybody. The, The wisdom of knowing this happens to everyone and everyone feels sad 
as do I when you're ministering to that. But to be able to bring that kind of equanimity into a situation that would be compounded by fear. Does that make sense to you? I remember years ago, someone told me about being with her friend as her friend died of um, breast cancer as a young woman. My friend is a Catholic nun, and her friend was a Catholic nun. And the friend's mother was in attendance. Uh, And she said, which, that's the most, a most terrifying thought for me. How would I be in that situation? I remember being astounded because Mary said, that Sue's mother had her hand on her all the time and said, it's all right, Sue, you're just dying. I thought, ah, how did she do that? She had a framework in which her religion gave her an understanding that gave her a composure to be able to do that. I remember being, wishing that I had that kind of composure. There are things that I don't want to get tested about. That's one of them. To be able to hold it in the mind without being startled too much to stay present. So, since we want to have time to practice, I want to tell you that what I do mostly with compassion is I make up the phrases. I notice that in the phrase, possible phrases for formal compassion practice, The last on that whole list is develop a phrase or phrases attuned to yourself or a particular person. That's actually what I do because saying formal phrases like I care about your suffering doesn't, it just doesn't work very well for me. I, I, you know, I don't like to like announce that in front of everybody, but, um, (laughs) But it's true, and it, in case it's true for you, you probably, I don't even want to you know, ask, but I, I'm pr- pretty well figuring that we're all of a certain age, that you've been with people who are dying. And we don't say those kind of things to people. We say, I love you. It's been wonderful knowing you. What can I do for you? Should I sing to you? We say really loving things to them and permutations of loving, if we can. I was in a transatlantic flight coming home from uh, Paris a couple of years ago, and someone died in the back of the plane. You know, there are 400 people on the flight or something. It's like a small city, and uh, people get born on flights, and they sometimes die on flights. That was the first time that I'd known about it. And I heard from the people who, uh, the, the, the physicians who were present who went up, they announced, any physicians, please come, that uh, the, um, the flight attendants, uh, the person was in the back of the plane, an older person with significant illnesses, so it wasn't a huge surprise to his family. But to transport this person to the front of the plane where there was room to do emergency CPR, they needed to put him on some sort of a blanket or something and pull him down the aisle. He was a big person. And what I heard is that everybody turned their eyes and looked the other way and leaned away from it. And, you know, I don't fault anybody for doing that. But I think that's really the, uh, it's a good image 
in terms of what the mind wants to do. I don't want to see this. And especially because the flight goes on. And uh, I thought about it. The person disappeared out of view, and the flight attendants served the meal, and people watched movies. And I thought, I don't know what to do with myself. Should I have a meal? I mean, somebody just died. And I thought, this is like a city. And in a city, people die all the time. People are dying as we're here. And we'll have a meal. You know, that, um, and I thought about what would I do? What would I say for these people? I thought about metta. But it seems like metta is too bland a thing. It is. It's a goodwill when there's nothing startling happening. Startling is happening. What I first did is I did metta, I did compassion for myself. Also with phrases that I make up, sweetheart, relax. You really got frightened. I did. My husband was one of the physicians that went up. I'm thinking, well, he's also an old man. Could happen to him. It could happen to anybody. Could happen to me. Where is his family? This person who died, who is he? So, and I could feel that I was stirred up by it. So I did phrases of relax to me. Relax, sweetheart. You are frightened. It's a long flight still. Take a breath in and out and in and out. And look around. And you take breaths in and out and in and out. And the mind relaxes. And it regains its natural wisdom. And the natural wisdom is people die. All the time. Sometimes on planes. It's not a bigger deal than somebody dies in the supermarket or in the CVS or in a car crash. It just happened. It doesn't mean it, it, not to notice, but not to be frightened of it. It's just what happened. So I, I realized as soon as I calmed down that my mind caught up with me. This happens. It's a very long flight. And then I did say compassion phrases for the family of that person. Whoever is there who flew with him, may they be well. May they be supported. May they have people who care for them here and there. May they ultimately be able to take solace in the fact that this person was in their life. I don't know exactly what I said, but I, the part that I want to tell you is that I took care of myself first. And once I took care of my own fear, my own startle, what comes up naturally is wishes for the person. So, so we should have some time left. I really want for us to sit quietly. And I'll let you choose who you're going to think about. If you want to, if you have somebody in your life who's in the middle of some difficulty that it's hard to think about, because they're in some sort of pain or difficulty. Think about yourself first. Think about yourself first, probably always. Think about yourself first. May say whatever phrases you want to for yourself until you feel that you're really here and really awake and really at ease. And then think about whoever it is that you're thinking about and see if you can invite them into your consciousness with the mind so relaxed that it doesn't need to contract itself at all. Find the words to say to that person. And we have some time. 
Maybe that person, maybe another person. Go back to yourself. My experience is if I give myself the space to say, let's think for a while now, so about people who could use some loving thoughts that I don't have to think of them. My mind presents them to me. They kind of line up. And more than anything, I find that the phrases I say are, take good care of yourself, I love you, I hope this passes soon. Things that you would say to a real person.
I wanted to leave a few minutes in case. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.